Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Well, yes, I'm happy to be here delivering uh, the, the word of Jesus Christ to us. And uh, let me just state off the top, I am, I am just so in awe of um, kind of the holiness on Jesus in this. And in some ways, this is, this is a no-win situation for the church um, in terms of speaking about this particular issue. And in some ways, it, it, it's, a, it's a necessary thing to do. The reason why I say that is, is there really isn't a bigger hot-button issue, I think, inside or outside the church right now, probably more outside of the church family now, than this whole issue of gender identity and sexuality and, and everything that goes with it. Um, Matt really preached the, the sermon, so if, if you don't hear anything else, that's, that's really it. This is about Jesus and, and, and submitting everything to Jesus. But, you know, as we think about this particular topic, we think of the different stories that are, that are running through our culture. And by stories, I mean it, it comes from all over the place. It comes through movies. It comes through songs. Uh, many of you might be aware of uh, Hosier's number one single that just kept on top of the charts for many, many months, Take Me to Church. Uh, who's, who's fully aware of, of this song? Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting play. He, he actually wrote it after a bad breakup, he said. Um, and he, he wrote it out of frustration of, with what he called the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church. Um, he's Irish, uh, and so I quote from the Irish Times, it's, it's very explicit, and it parallels really a, a relationship between uh, two individuals of obviously any gender in any sort of kind of relationship, um, and it parallels that with the relationship that we have with the church, people have with the church, and so it's a very, in some ways, a very graphic um, story, and it's, it's quite a powerful song in which he says, he, I quote from an interview he gave to the Irish Times, this is what it's about, sexuality and sexual orientation, regardless of orientation, he said, is just natural. An act of sex is one of the most human things. But an organization like the church, say through its doctrine, would undermine humanity by successfully teaching shame about sexual orientation, that it is sinful or that it offends God. The song is about asserting yourself and reclaiming your humanity through an act of love. It's very clear what his message was. I'm, I'm not going to say I agree with his message or everything, but I am really in awe of the power of that story to just rip through culture and become really an anthem for most of culture. Um, I didn't totally grasp what this song was actually about until I saw the video that goes with it, which delves even deeper to not just um, sexual orientation, but it goes deeper with um, kind of this idea of gender confusion. And, and the, the whole video really is about this, this tension that this young man faces as he wants and feels that he should become a woman. And, and the, the video actually ends with him coming live onto, into a concert and everyone cheering and, and saying, take off your mask, be who you are. It's powerful. I mean, I cried when I saw this and I thought, this is a powerful story. Now, so that, 
I know that this is not just an issue that goes on within our church. This is an issue that goes everywhere. We share a theater. We share rental space with people that would, I, I think, completely disagree with what I would say is our stance on this whole issue. And, and I know we just can't cover everything that there is to cover, and I apologize for that. And so my hope is that this message can, can be clear and yet at the same time just be the starting point for a long conversation about how do we deal with this particular thing in our culture. In some ways, it's very easily put because it's, it's simply listed, honestly, and, and I'll take the time to show you this, as one of many sins that the Bible condemns. But the, problem, the problems get really complicated. Uh, first of all, that, that the church has mistakenly, in some ways, uh, some churches that is, I speak for Christian churches everywhere, have made this a, a single voter issue. In other words, this is what it's about. And, and I'm afraid that's just so unbiblical when you look at the biblical evidence. It's not the single issue. Um, the reason why it's such a hot topic is because actually our culture has made it that way, has made it the hottest topic. Um, so, but it's complicated in that. Uh, secondly, it's, it's, it's complicated because, and here's the wisdom of the day, it's really complicated. It's really complicated because it's complicated. It's questions of gender identity, transgendered, same-sex, Maphrodite, Maphrodite. It makes it a very, very difficult subject to talk about. And thirdly, I would say it's complicated because not only has our culture in some ways made this a, comp uh, a hot-button issue, but they've said, here is the issue and here are your two responses to it. So in other words, much of culture has instructed the church on how to respond to this. And when the church hasn't necessarily responded in exactly the way the culture thinks the church could, should respond, hands go up, division happens, tension happens. In other words, we're not only kind of given like this issue to deal with, but then we're told basically as a Christian, how do you respond to this? And when we respond as a Christian, they said, you can't respond like that as a Christian and still be who you say you are. So I say all these things just as, as a reminder to you that if you've ever like, had some stumbling blocks in this and you're trying to figure this out and this isn't crystal clear for you, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not simply that, that it's wrong. That, that's, it's not that simple. I know that and I understand that. And all of these things add add to the complication. But really, we're not here to talk about how the culture kind of sees it. I, I say that just to introduce this tense issue. And it's like, I, I wish at this point I could tell a joke to just release the, the valve of tension that's in this room right now. From where I stand, all of you, like, you literally all look like this. Um, because what we need to do is talk openly about it. That is what the church hasn't done well at all. Is just talk openly through this. And say, like, this is a place where we want to wrestle through these particular issues. And, and, and for some of you, this is a large issue. That, that's because you have friends involved in same-sex relationships. That's actually my hope, is that a number of us have friends. If we're in this neighborhood, we, we should. Um, 
Secondly, some of you are dealing with this personally or have family members that are dealing with this personally. Some of you are indifferent and you can't afford at this point in history to be indifferent to this issue. You can't afford to not know what you think about this issue because I tell you what, culturally the stories are better in culture. And so if you're just going with the best story, I I wouldn't come to the church necessarily for that. If you're going with what you think God's story is on this issue, then you need to be here to understand this. And some just actually don't know what the issues are. You're, You're isolated from these sorts of things. And so what you need to hear first and foremost, and this is where we'll start this morning, is that I don't believe this is actually a sexuality issue primarily. This is actually an identity issue. I I know this because throughout Scripture, there is no such thing as a moral code for Christians that you just simply look at and you say, this is is how we're supposed to act. Christianity is not about a set of moral practices that help separate people from people that are less than. That's some people's perception of Christianity, that Christianity is this, is this group of people that think they're better than everyone else because of some of their moral practices. I say, like, right off the hop, this is not the true definition of Christianity that may be an actual definition of the church that you may have been from or are part of or have heard about, but that's not the true definition of the church or a Christian. A Christian is someone who primarily finds their identity, who completely finds their identity in Jesus Christ. That's the definition of a a Christian. The Bible doesn't actually use the word Christian a lot because it was a name that was given to people who followed Jesus by someone who didn't. In other words, it's a nickname by the culture of people that were disciples of Jesus. They literally were like, what, who are those idiots? Well, they're people who follow Christ, so they're little Christ. Ha <laughs> they're Christians. Ha <laughs> ha. That was the description. The true description of someone who's a Christian is actually someone who follows Jesus. They called them disciples. And discipleship, being a disciple is your identity if you're a Christian. I want to show you this from Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8 or an app. Turn in Mark chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I'd ask that you put up your hand and uh, we have one of our ushers who would love to bring you a Bible. Uh, Mark is the second gospel. So that means uh, the Bible is divided in Old Testament and New Testament. Go New Testament and go to Mark. It's a little to the right. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. There's a very powerful statement that Jesus makes. And he says this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'll read it again. If anyone would come after me, that means if anyone would follow me, let him, it's inclusive language there, let him or her deny themselves and take up his cross, her cross, and follow me. You see, the definition of someone who follows Jesus is someone who, like Jesus did, lays down their own path for life and gives it to Jesus Christ, who then designs a path for him. When he first spoke this, it would have been confusing for some of the first hearers because they wouldn't, cross, isn't that, like, that's a symbol of execution, right? Like, that means, like, like, death. 
And Jesus, what Jesus was saying is that if you want to follow me, you're going to have to somehow, whatever that is, wherever you are, whatever your orientation, whatever your family life, whatever your ethnicity, however old you are, you're going to have to lay that down like I'm going to lay my life down on the cross and you're going to have to lay it down if you want to follow me. I honestly believe that's the hardest word you and I will ever hear in our lives. That's far harder than giving up anything else in our life. Any one particular thing. And to me, I just don't want to move beyond the obvious. I don't think we should talk about sexual orientation. I don't think we should talk about what Jesus says about same-sex relationships until we at least put forward this hard word, which is the hardest we will ever hear. Believe me, this is far more offensive to our culture than anything else we could say. Your way of life is not working. Follow Jesus's. Just saying those words are almost the most controversial words we will ever hear. Have you ever done that at work? You know what you need to do? You just need to set aside everything in your life and follow Jesus. It's a difficult word. But it is the word. And I think we make a huge mistake of getting caught up sometimes into, I won't say secondary issues as they aren't important. I will say secondary. And if you haven't established that Jesus is your full authority, if this has not been your confession yet, that Jesus has not designed your way of life, then don't worry about anything else I say about same-sex relationships. It'll just sound moralistic. It'll just sound therapeutic. It'll just sound like Christians have always sounded. Oh, they hate these particular types of people. But the reality is, truthfully, if we want to treat the Bible in fairness and not take it out of context, and might I add, this is also one of the difficulties that complicates this, is people don't really believe the Bible has any sense of authority at all anymore. And a lot of times, that's Christians as well. And maybe there's a theoretical, the Bible has something to say, but functionally, the Bible does not command my obedience. It doesn't demand my ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. All behavior in the Bible is laid out to show anything that you hear morally will always stem out of this fact. The definition of Christian, and this is why when someone becomes a Christian, we baptize them. Not when someone becomes a mature Christian, mind you. But when someone agrees with this, we say, we want you to symbolize this in the format of baptism. And here's what baptism is. It's publicly displaying to everyone around that you have died a death, your own death, a metaphorical death in some ways, or a metaphorical picture of the actual spiritual death that happened in your life, but you rise up again in, in Christ. That's why we, 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 we literally, we have a horse trough. It's about coffin size. It's about coffin length, and it looks like a coffin, and that's perfect. I mean, that may sound really cryptic to you, but it's perfect. Here's why. Because it's kind of like going into the coffin, but coming back out. If you're a good pastor, you, you pull the person out, right? You don't leave them down in there. That's a terrible pastor. That's a terrible anyone, right? It's called drowning. We don't drown people, we baptize them, we allow them to publicly display the death that they have died. What is that death? 
It's the death that says, I have sinned. I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. My life is not my own. I am not my own authority. Jesus Christ, who died for my sins in my place, is my authority. If that is not straight in your mind, friends, everything I will say from now on will have your backup. Everything. And for some of us, this is why gender issues are so tough, is because that has become our identity. You, you actually see, I, I read newspaper articles on this with people who are wrestling through this issue, and they, they said, the church told me to deny my true identity, which is my sexuality. I said, I don't know what church that particularly is, but they missed a lot when they told you your gender was in your identity or your identity was in your gender. What they should have told you is your identity is not in your gender. It's not in your role as a husband or wife. It's not in your boyfriend, girlfriend. It's not in your friendships. It's not in your job. It's not in your money. It's not in where you live. It's not in who you know. It's in Jesus Christ. That's what they should have told you if they're the church. And friends, we have no right to really go beyond this until we see whether or not people are actually interested in that. Because if they're not interested in that, I can guarantee you they probably won't listen to anything else you say about same-sex relationships. In fact, I would argue the Bible basically says if they're not willing to say that, get your nose out of their business. That's honestly the Bible's approach. Someone says that and they're wrestling through this, okay, now there's a conversation that needs to happen. But Paul actually had someone write him some Corinthians write him and these Corinthians were like, hey Paul, you said that we weren't supposed to associate with sexually immoral people. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he basically says, I didn't mean people outside the church. You weirdos, like listen to what I'm going to say. I said, I was talking about people inside a church. If you didn't associate anyone who didn't perfectly agree with your moral stance, he said, you'd have to leave this earth. You're going to run into them everywhere. So what do I have to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church? It's a good word for us. It's an important word. Take that seriously. Now, I know, I know, I know this is complicated because it's honestly, I've, I preached in this church about singleness, and the first question I had following the service is, what do I do about homosexuality? I was like, I didn't even talk about that this morning. So I know that this is complicated. But I also know if we don't start there, first of all, we haven't really preached the gospel. We preached morality. But secondly, we're not going to get ears on anything because it will be mixed up within the gospel. So here's what I say. Figure this one out. For those who are struggling with this, honestly, figure this one out. For those who are indifferent, make sure that your identity is in Jesus Christ and, and not in your job and not in your marriage. I mean, we've said this throughout the entire series that one of the issues with the Christian church is we've made marriage in some ways an idol. We've made it an identity. We've celebrated it. We've left people who are not married kind of out in this nowhere's land. Maybe we haven't like 
made programs like if you're not married, you can't really be a mature Christian, but we do it with our eyes, right? We exclude people just on that way. We're like, oh, you're 38 and you're not married. Oh, okay. We can do that. And you know what that is? That is sinful. Because that's made marriage into an idol. That's made marriage into an identity that is associated with Christianity. It just can't be that way. There are no exceptions in this passage. There's no other ways. This is the question for all of us. Where is your identity? Where is your identity? Have you figured that one out? When someone asks, what do you do, or who, who, who are you? Do, you, do you talk about what you do? It's very common in our culture, right? Like, hey, I'm Trev, I'm a pastor. No, that's what I do, that's not who I am. Can you imagine if you walked around and actually said that? Someone's like, oh, I'm, I'm Bill, and, and I'm, you know, I'm a construction worker. No, no, not what you do, who are you? They'd be like, what, what are you talking about? Because this issue of identity has gone so much by the wayside that what we do now has become who we are. And I would say what our sexual orientation is. And this is where our culture will start the, 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 basically the controversy. You're against who I am. And we've tried to figure out, well, wh- why, why am I against them? And, and the question is really... I'm not against who they are. I'm against the fact that their identity is in what their orientation is. Now, again, this can be misused in the wrong way. So what does Jesus say? Is there any help here? Is there any help here? I think there is. common question that comes up is, what does Jesus say about same-sex relationships? Often, I will hear the argument, well, Jesus didn't really talk about same-sex relationships, so that obviously means he affirmed him. Honestly, even from a legal standpoint, isn't that a little bit of a stretch? To, To make an argument by what someone doesn't say, it's pretty much on thin ice. Now, I'm not saying that he's as clear as, in some ways, I would like him to be. But Jesus affirms, but here's what he affirms. He affirms the original statement about marriage in Genesis chapter 22. Whenever Jesus is asked about marriage, he always reverts to Genesis chapter 22, verses 24. And in that chapter, it's a very important chapter, and as a a Jewish teacher, he would have been well familiar with this verse, and so would have the culture and the, the context that he was at, would have been very familiar with it. And this is what it said. This is basically the very beginning of the story of God that we know of. And this is God laying out that he created men and women. And so he actually creates man by speaking, and then he creates woman by taking flesh out of the side of the man. I'm not totally sure how this worked. Can't wait to ask Jesus in glory someday. I'm like, seriously, can you show us how you did that? that that's going to be fascinating. Put a man to sleep, that won't be hard, Right? And then take woman out of him. Yes, I know, it does kind of sound crazy. Let's just admit that. It sounds crazy. And then the man said, the first time he really speaks, of course he speaks. 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It's kind of like it's written in a song. That's what happens, right? Dude sees a lady and he sings. It's not a huge surprise. And then there's commentary in Genesis chapter 22 that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it wasn't just the example of Adam and Eve. This is instruction for all time. So there's some, some help, some commentary from the text where he says, okay, this is what happened in the garden when God first created men and women, but this is really something that's going to be effective for all time. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I dare you to put that on your coffee cup as you drink in the morning. <laughs> What's the verse on your mug say? Oh, Genesis 22:25. Anyways, moving on. What does Jesus do? Well, he affirms this. He affirms this. So in Mark chapter 10, now I know I'm flipping around a lot. In Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is asked about divorce, and, the, and this, is, this is some teachers of the law who thought they knew the law better than Jesus. And so they're trying to, they're these loophole guys. You've met these guys, right? Or maybe you are one of these guys. Or girls. I've met girls like this too that are loophole girls, right? Yeah, but what about, right? So these, this, is, this is the Pharisees coming up to Jesus. They're like, yeah, what about? Okay, that's fine. You healed a guy, great, fine. But do you really know the Bible? I know it's not really a debate for today, right? seems kind of ancient to us. But they ask him, they're like, okay, Jesus, the law says that we should divorce. What's your take on divorce? And what they're doing is they're trying to respond to Jesus and they think they have him. Okay, because if he says, well, I've got a new way, they say, well, clearly you don't care about Scripture, right? This is kind of still similar to ways we argue. We put people in these positions and then we say, well, what do you think about this? Well, clearly you don't care about the Bible, so I won't pay attention to whatever you say. And then the other way, if he says, well, I completely affirm this, and they say, yeah, well, but you don't, under, you don't understand. He says, you don't get it. You don't get what marriage is really about. Let me take you to the original text that, by the way, I wrote. I wish he would have said that. Just want you to know, I wrote this, so I kind of know it. And he affirms, still true today, he says. Still true. Male, female. Man, in relationship with woman. The two shall become one flesh. This is what sex is for. We'll talk all about this next week. This is, this is the purpose of sex in a sexual relationship is to help the man and the woman turn into one flesh so therefore they can do the things that God has called them to do, which is be fruitful and multiply and show His glory and be recipients of the grace of God and help each other be covenant partners. That's the original design. So when someone says, does Jesus say anything about homosexuality or same-sex relationships or any of those things, is absolutely He does. Because He absolutely affirms that Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 is standard text for helping us to understand marriage relationships. I, I did this a couple weeks ago where I showed you four different places that is almost verbatim the same phrase. 
This is the long way. This is the fodder for some of you that have said, like, does the Bible really have anything to say about this? I said, absolutely. And marriage would have been understood very clearly, especially from a Jewish perspective, male-female. One man, one woman. Believe me, it was not written to a culture that was completely excluded from these sorts of things. In fact, the rest of the New Testament was written by a man who went to a number of these various towns where he would have experienced this as normality. Places like Ephesus. We, we, we were there. there. There's gods everywhere in Ephesus. 2,000 years later, there are shrines to gods of all kinds. There are all kinds of definitions of sexuality and gender there. That's one of the places, many places. There's others where it was just a complete free-for-all. So it's, it's not carefully looking at Scripture in some ways to say that, that Jesus has nothing to say. One of the things I'm not going to get into is what the rest of the Bible says. As my buddy Matt said, this is a place where a blog would come really handy, Trev. Hint, hint. So hopefully this is an opportunity for me to Think carefully about blogging. But this is what Jesus says. I think I doubled up on my, on my um, slides there. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus explains that, that all sin actually comes from the heart. Mark chapter 7 this time in verse 20. Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Or actually, let's go back to 18. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man or woman, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porne which is the Bible's shorthand word for any sexual conduct outside of sexual relationship between a married man and a woman. So he was familiar with all kinds of different ideas. This is all to say simply, Jesus does have something to say about this. He says, this is what defiles. What's interesting, though, is he doesn't stop at sexual immorality. He says, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's a pretty extensive list. I don't even think this is exhaustive. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, it is against my original design. Yes, it is not in line with the way I originally created marriage to be. But it's simply, when we think of distortions, it's one of many distortions that we are all a part of. And this is very, very important for us to get. This is not primarily a sexuality issue. It's a sin issue. And what does the Bible say about sin? It says some have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Am I right? What does it say? All. I'm using the word all here because that's what's in the text. All have fallen short of this. There is not one person. This is why when someone was caught in sexual misconduct, Jesus said, hey, if you haven't ever sinned, go ahead. 
You be the first one to throw the stone. Then he says to the lady, hey, I thought there were people here to stone you. What happened? Is there no one here to stone you? Is there no one here to throw stones? Isn't no one wanting to punish you for the sin you have committed? See, Jesus was smart because he knew that no one could answer faithfully. Yeah, you know, I'm one of those people that just escaped all this. I'm actually without sin. And so I am eager to stone people. He knew there was no one like this except himself. Here's what's amazing. He shows his love, his grace, his truth in this when he says, I don't condemn you either, but stop it. That's amazing to me. Stop sinning. I don't condemn you. I think we misunderstand this idea of condemn. Condemn really has this idea of pushing away. To condemn someone is to send them away, right? When you condemn someone to prison, you don't invite them into your home. You send them away to a cell to be by themselves where they think about what they did. Jesus says, I don't send you away. He says, but I want you to know the truth. This is sin. You need to understand it. And you need to follow me. You need to lay down your cross. And so what are our options, friends? I've said these two things. This is not about sexuality as much as it is about identity. Jesus does have things to say about this. So what are our options? And here is why I say this has also been complicated is we've been asked sometimes, and some of you are often asked, what, what do you think about this particular issue? Now, you know when you're asked this that your response better be, I'm completely affirming. What they're expecting sometimes, if, if people know that you're a Christian, is, no, I hate people who have sinned this way. And Jesus provides us, I think, a third option, which is to say, the Bible's pretty clear on marriage, but I love you and I want to be in relationship with you and I want to introduce you to a man who can take away the pressure of having to place the weight of your identity in your sexuality. This is the way forward, friends. This is the way forward. Are some people going to reject this? Yes. Just so you know, many people rejected Jesus who could never say, yeah, I was wrong about that. You realize that? Jesus never had to say, ah, I missed it. He was always right, and yet many people just chose on many different occasions to reject him. But there are stories all over the Bible, can't spend a lot of time in them, where Jesus said, I'm not here to send you away, I'm here to draw you in. And so I've got a couple of of ways to leave us to those who are struggling through same-sex attraction issues. Again, we haven't even scratched the surface in my mind. There's so much more to talk about here. I hope this conversation goes. This is a call to all our city group leaders. This is the start of a long journey for all of you. To know and understand people and to listen carefully. But first of all, to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, I would say this. Don't ignore your struggle, please. 
I don't think the way forward through this is to pretend that you're not dealing with this. To pretend that you're okay and there's nothing wrong with you and you don't have identity issues. FYI, spoiler alert, we all have identity issues. And if you don't, your identity issue is you're lying about your identity issue. The way forward, by the way, I'll say this about everything. The way forward in your marital problems is not to keep silent about it. It's to talk about it. The way forward in your sexual sin struggles is not to privately try to battle this on your own. It's to do this in the context of community. Why do you think we emphasize city groups so much? Because we know it has a natural way of pulling this stuff out of you and helping you to deal with it even when you don't want to. And so my strong encouragement is please, 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 and I'm praying like crazy, Holy Spirit, would we be a church where someone doesn't get totally shocked when someone says, hey, I have same-sex identity, I have same-sex attraction issues, and I'd really like to work through it and figure out what's going on. I'd like to hear about this Jesus again. I would hope that we can be a place where you can walk in at any point in the journey and talk through this. Secondly, I would say, for those of you who are struggling through this, there is hope in Jesus. The road may be long, may be difficult, but there is hope in Jesus. I want to read Romans 8, 23, 25 to you, and I, I want to read it out of the New Living Translation because I think it's just, in this particular passage, it's very helpful, the Scripture. It says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. It gives this idea that our struggles are not final here, no matter how long they are. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Any of you long for a new body for a new way, for like, hey, I can't wait until Jesus resolves all of my issues. I tell you, there's, there's very few days in my life these days where I don't wake up going, Jesus, I, I know I have a family, I love them, I don't want to leave them, but I can't wait for the day when you redeem everything in my life. And I long and I groan, and I don't have half the problems that some of the people I know struggle with. And I'm longing and groaning. Here's the hope. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. We long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait eagerly with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children. Including the new bodies He has promised. We were given this hope when we were saved. Perhaps this issue is so deep that there really is no other answer than someday this will be resolved. We're not sure when, we're not sure how, we're not sure if. But Jesus promises someday, when you're with me in glory, all will be redeemed. There is hope. Secondly, to our church, I think this is important. And here's why. We need to treat sin like sin. This is not for those who are hungry to throw stones. 
If you're here this morning and you enjoy throwing stones at other Christians or other people, you don't belong as a Christian. Christianity is not a religion whereby you can appear better than other people. If that's your understanding of Christianity, you have vastly under misunderstood Christianity. Christianity where is a belief that the only person who rightfully could throw a stone at you is Jesus. And he doesn't. He draws you in. Let's take our cues, friends, from how we deal with this issue from Jesus. And every time you feel self-righteous or we feel self-righteous, let us remember that self-righteous people do not belong in God's kingdom. Jesus did not come to this earth to say, I am looking for the people who think they know the best, who think they're better than everyone else. In fact, he said, I don't think you'll belong here. If, however, you understand yourself as a fellow sinner, maybe then the conversation can begin on how to deal with this. And I would say this is just from my personal experience. If you don't have friends, like people you would call friends dealing with same-sex attraction, maybe not get involved. And the reason why I say that is it, it, it'll, it's just so hard to identify with someone when you're not really in relationship with them. Jesus doesn't talk through our sin issues without attempting for relationship with us. He doesn't start off by telling people all of their sins. He starts off by pursuing relationship with them. And once they decide they want to give him the authority, then he begins to talk through this with them. So how would any person deal with any sin? Like greed. Like lust. Like saying, I have a problem. My identity is that I find too much identity in my job. Well, how would you deal with that sin? Would you say, well, Jesus is wrong. Let me know when you figured that out. And then maybe we can go out for coffee. That's not what you would do. You would say, tell me more. Why do you think you're like that? Why do you think you struggle with this? Why is this an issue for you? Lastly, I would say, remember that people are afraid to talk about this. I want you to raise your hands. I'm just kidding. I don't want you to raise your hand. Some of you would be terrified to raise your hand. But inside, answer this question honestly. Do you like to talk about your deepest, most hurtful place in your life? Are you open with most people about the most secret sins you have? Do you, do you like to open up about your deepest identity issues? Maybe you say, no, I, I don't like it, but I, I need to, but it takes time. I would say, remember this. Throughout the whole situation, remember, this is terribly painful for people. I'm embarrassed with the way sometimes Christians act about people that sin. I'm embarrassed the way I act. Ask more than you talk. Your best equipment for this job will be your ears, not your mouth. We need to listen. We need to ask people, what, what's going on? Tell me about your life. 
Tell, tell me why you're like this. Why do you think you're like this? Share why, you, why, you, why do you disagree. And, and just honestly, just listen. I, I think Jesus gave us two ears and one mouth because I think, I think he had something there in saying he wanted us to do a lot of listening and about half the talking. I know when to talk, right, preacher? I, I get it. This is, this is a word for me. But we know this is sensitive. We know that Jesus has something to say. We know that this is painful. So let's act like Jesus act. Simple. But again, as we close, we can't act like Jesus act unless we have first recognized that he has loved us first. This is not a moral imperative. Go out and be like Jesus. This is, if Jesus has changed your life, you can actually have Jesus in you and act with the love of Jesus. That's the only way you can do this. That's the only way forward. Condemnation is not the way forward here or in any other way, with any other relationship. The way forward is to remember what we're going to remember in two minutes. And Caleb, Ben, come on up. Here's what we celebrate. We celebrate the fact that Jesus did not stay isolated from us, from our problems, but came to us. That's celebrated in the, in the bread. It, it symbolizes flesh. It symbolizes Jesus was here. He was on this earth. He had dusty feet. He walked this earth. He lived the life that we lived. He, he was tempted in all the ways that we were tempted. He faced all the things that a normal human being would face. He was here, but he wasn't just here to live a good moral life. He was here to die a death that you and I should have died because we are all sinners in need of grace. We are all people who are broken. We are all people without real hope until Jesus provided us a living hope. What is that symbolized in? The shed blood of Jesus Christ. You and I know that that's the true that is the true picture of sacrifice is when someone lays their life down for you. Have you ever had someone lay their life down for you? Right answer? Yes. Jesus has. Celebrated in the blood. If that's you today, would you celebrate as Caleb leads us?